0: And let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, 22nd chapter of Matthew, the first 14 verses. Now in a few weeks, I'm not exactly sure when, but in a few weeks I hope to preach the letters to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Revelation. And we'll be doing some short series of that nature until we're back in this, in this building when I hope to uh, preach through the book of Philippians as the first series when we are returned into the nave. But on occasion, uh, some independent texts until we come to that time. Matthew 22. Let's bow in prayer before reading God's word. Our Father and our God, we ask in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us on a cross, Jesus Christ our Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit will be operative even in our prayer at this moment, as we ask that you will open our hearts to receive Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel, for some to receive him for the first time, for others of us to continually receive Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Prepare us as your word is proclaimed to come to the table of the Lord, and we ask that we will live Christian lives as believers, and that you would use the preaching of this text this morning and of all sermons preached from this pulpit, that you would use this congregation and our worship and our service for the extension of your Son's great and glorious name. For we ask this humbly and with great depth of heart, desirous that Jesus the King be exalted in our midst and throughout the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 1 This is the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. "...and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. People of God, the great contest between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism in the time of the Reformation revolved essentially around. The great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. Protestantism affirms with Paul that justification is forensic, that it is a once-for-all act based solely on the imputation of Christ's righteousness to which we add nothing whatsoever. Rome is a semi-Pelagian system that views justification as an infusion of inherent personal holiness or a habit of grace. And only by good works, says Rome, do we derive the second justification that avails on the day of judgment. The two systems could not be farther apart. One consequence is that in Roman Catholicism there is no assurance of salvation. I'm not making that up, that's their theology. Except on rare occasions and rare circumstances there can be no assurance of salvation in the Roman Catholic system. It is a system of pastoral cruelty. But Rome's theology fits man's attempts to save himself. It is at the heart of a sinner to deny grace, to reinterpret grace, to minimize the grace of God. And this passage is all about the grace of God. So keep this contrast in mind as we now turn to the parable, will you? Here the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a great wedding feast for his son, but many refused the invitation. How will the wedding be filled with guests? And even though the original intent has something, though not exclusively, has something to do with the Jewish nation to which the promise of the gospel had come time and time again and they refused to obey and to respond in faith to the gospel. This also speaks of going to the Gentiles and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles And even though it was true that when Jesus came to his own, his own received him not, and they were stubbornly and wickedly refusing the gospel, so it is true now that the gospel goes into the world and is preached. And there are many who believe, and there are many, nonetheless, who continue to stubbornly refuse to hear the gospel. And do not think that this is only in missionary settings around the world where the gospel is preached for the first time. The saddest way to hell is sitting in a church pew Sunday after Sunday, hearing the gospel and refusing to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. So now we come to the parable, and the first thing we see is the invitation, the invitation. According to this text, the kingdom of God is compared to a great feast, and the king had this great feast for his son, and all was made ready. The invitations went out. What would you have thought if you had received an invitation from the king to come and to be, to be festive at the feast that was given in honor of his son? Well, of course, the invitation went out and this represents gospel privileges and blessings and all within the hearing of the joyful sound are bid come to the wedding feast. But we read in verse 3 that there were those who refused and who rejected the invitation. We read that he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. In the Greek, it's an imperfect, it means that they persistently refused. They were indignant, they were stubborn in their refusal. Who would spurn the king? Who would turn aside from the gracious proposals of good news and glad tidings that have come from the king? Well, the king's son is obviously Jesus. His servants are those who preach the gospel and sinners persistently refuse. And the invitation is given yet once more this morning. Now listen, I want to say to you, whoever may be here who has not received this gospel invitation, that you have an immortal soul. That when you leave this earth you're going to live on and on and on and there's the promise of the resurrection the, of the just and unjust also when Jesus comes again. But the most important thing that you have is your soul. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? J.C. Ryle said, what would you think of a man that fed his dog but starved his own child in time of famine? You say the child is so precious the child should be fed. But the most important thing that you possess is your own soul. And some here neglect your own souls. So concerned are you with things that pass away, things that are temporal, things that are not eternal, with things that are here today and gone tomorrow. So concerned are you with things that pass away that you have no time deep within your hearts for the invitation of the king that goes out even in this sermon today. J.C. Ryle beautifully said, the gospel is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, a home to the outcast, a loving friend to the lost. It is glad tidings God offers through his dear son to be at one with sinful man. And yet, that invitation goes out and is rejected. But see the king's mercy... As we move on in the text, the second thing we see is the invitation renewed. The invitation renewed. The king repeats the invitation in verse 4. Again he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So listen to how the great feast will be. Uh, the the oxen have been slaughtered the, the meal is going to be wonderful undoubtedly it would last for days and days and days and days it would be a wonderful thing and the king and his son would be honored all of this at the king's largesse it doesn't cost you anything and yet we find that even though the king's invitation is renewed as it is so often again and again and again and again Yet it was refused, verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So why did those invited refuse to come? Well, the text in verses 5 and 6 tells us there are those who paid no attention. There was the invitation, beautifully adorned, that came in the mail for each of them, and they simply refused. They simply paid no attention to the invitation. As Jesus says in John five forty, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. It is simply a brutal refusal of the Son of God. Multitudes perish for many reasons. But I think the greatest reason that multitudes perish is because they make light of Christ and are absolutely careless in view of the invitation of the gospel. They are sheer, it is sheer carelessness. But others had better things to do or they thought and they were lawful things. They weren't things that were bad. They had farms and they had businesses to care for. But this was an exceptional thing, was it not? The invitation from the king, but they thought they had better things to do. Others were violently hostile, as Israel was, who killed the prophets. As many are in the world today, as the gospel is preached, and they kill God's messenger. They are violently hostile. So in verse 6, The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So some paid no attention, some had better things to do, some were violently hostile. But what you can say about each one is that it was a selfish consideration. In each case, they all were selfish reasons. They care nothing about the king, they care nothing about the son, they care nothing about the festivities, and nothing about the invitation. They care only for themselves and doing what they want to do. And the Bible always sees the gospel as coming to responsible beings. Few enter, but all are invited. And so we have here today, undoubtedly, in a congregation such as this, the king renewing the invitation through his servant, his messenger, opening his word. The gospel has come time and time again through his ministers. God has yet spared someone or ones here, and you have refused to believe the gospel. You are rejecting your only hope. You see no beauty in Christ. You see no glory in the gospel. You see no need for the gospel to save you from sin. There are things you want more than Christ, and as one of the old writers put it, open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel. Kills its tens of thousands. And it's possible to grow up in a church in which the gospel is preached. Your parents may believe the gospel and yet children you do not believe the gospel. It is possible for someone to have been here and you're quite old and you've heard the gospel over and over. And yet you have refused the invitation of the king. And I want us to be sober. Again the gospel comes to responsible human beings. And I want us to think. What are you doing when you reject the king's call to believe in Christ when you refuse the invitation to the wedding feast. You know, the coffin in which you will be laid in the ground may already be manufactured. And the equipment for digging the grave is probably digging someone's grave this week. What are we doing when we don't think of eternal things, when we are inconsiderate of the king's invitation? Well, how does the king respond? The third thing we see is the king's wrath, the king's wrath, and you see it here in verse seven. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king is enraged. He sends an army, he destroys the murderers, and he burns the city. A time is coming in which Jesus Christ will return according to the New Testament. And we are told in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 that this is how he will return. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, who do not respond in faith to the gospel invitation that has gone out. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction in the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the invitation that comes, the king is enraged when they do not respond by coming to the wedding feast and he sent out his troops to destroy them. And every judgment in history simply points to the greater judgment that is to come when Jesus Christ will return and in wrath will destroy those who do not respond to the gospel invitation. Because you see the invitation is the invitation of a king, the king. And when the king sends the invitation, the invitation is also a command. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. God's wrath awaits those who reject. Sinners are responsible for that rejection. The repeated renewed calls of the king shows the king's patience. Would he not be justified to punish at the first rejection of the invitation? But when the king continually invites and those do not respond when the king senses wrath who can stand well you ask the question will there be guests at the feast and that moves us on in the text to the fourth thing we see the indiscriminate call the indiscriminate call let's read verses 8 through 10 once again then he said to his servants the wedding feast is ready But those invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So he says to his servants, they've rejected. I'm going to punish them. I send you out. And you just go out into the street corners and you invite anyone. Universal invitation, the indiscriminate invitation, the indiscriminate call of the gospel. God sends his missionaries and his ministers into the world to preach indiscriminately to sinners as sinners that there is a gospel, good news, to which they are to respond. And he says all kinds of people, both good and bad, the morally upstanding, the morally degraded, are all sinners who are in need of the gospel invitation. And that gospel invitation continues to go out indiscriminately in the world. So that at the end of this book we see echoes even of this parable when Jesus says, Go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The invitation continues to go into the world. And when that invitation went out, there were many who responded because verse 10 tells us that the wedding feast was filled with guests. The Savior comes and he saves from sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But there is only one way to be accepted in God's wedding feast. There is only one way. The call goes out, many reject, but many respond. But there is only one way that you can be accepted in the wedding feast, which leads us to the fifth thing that we see here, the wedding garment, the wedding garment. And we see the wedding garment in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. So the king came in to see his guests. And there was an intruder He had no wedding garment. Evidently the king was giving special splendid garments to those who would enter in. They were the guests of the king. They are the ones who had responded by faith to the invitation. He got by this one. He got by all the guests. He got by the servants of the king. But he did not get by the king. God the king said to him in verse 12, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. God the king is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You and I may not be able to look at someone and know whether he's dressed in the wedding garment, but the king knows. And the man was approached by the king. How did you get in here, friend, without a wedding garment? And the text says literally, that he was muzzled. He was muzzled. He had nothing to say. He was mute. He was condemned in his own heart and in his own conscience. He had nothing, nothing to say in the presence of the king. He knew that he was an intruder. He knew that he did not belong at the king's banquet. The king's eye pierced right through. The man was personally accountable. The man knew his own guilt. The secrets of every heart will one day be made manifest before the infinite heart-searching God. Someone here today undoubtedly knows within your heart that if you stood before the king today, you are not prepared. You would not be prepared for the all-seeing, all-knowing, penetrating eye of the king. You would not be prepared. So someone says, well, I'll just hide in the crowd on that day. Well, no, you won't. There will be no hiding from the king on that day. What would you think of someone who came and said, I want that house. Give me that house to some authority that had the responsibility to give the house to the correct buyer or the person who really owns it or shall I say the person who has the title give me that house well just show me the title I don't have a title just give me the house no title no house and there are some here undoubtedly you want to go to heaven you say you want the bliss of, of, of heaven you say you don't know what heaven is if you're a sinner not trusting Christ you wouldn't be happy there But where's your title? You have no title. You have no right to enter into heaven if you have not responded in faith to the Son and to the king's invitation. So the man was punished by the king himself. The king was offended. And he is offended by all who say, I will come, but I will come in my own way. I will come in my own time. I will come by my own efforts. I will come by my philosophy. I will come by my religion. I will come by my works. I will come by my efforts. I will come by my baptismal register or by my church membership or my pagan substitute for the gospel. And it's really saying, you know what, God? I don't need you. I don't need the way that you are prepared. I don't need your son I don't need his gospel. I don't need the Savior's perfect life and incarnation. I don't need his sacrifice on the cross. I don't need his resurrection from the dead. I'll come in my own way and in my own time. And the sentence that is given is irrevocable, irreversible. As we read in verse 13, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Old Matthew Henry the Puritan said this. Hypocrites go by the light of the gospel to utter darkness. Now isn't that a remarkable saying? They go by the light of the gospel into utter darkness. And hell will be held indeed to such a condemnation more intolerable. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This our Savior often uses as part of the description of hell torments. Which are hereby represented. Not so much by the misery itself as by the resentment sinners will have of heaven. Of God. There will be weeping. That's an expression of great sorrow and anguish, not a gush of tears which gives present ease, but constant weeping which is constant torment. And the gnashing of teeth is an expression of the greatest rage and indignation. They will be like a wild bull in a net full of the fury of the Lord. Let us therefore hear and fear. All false professors, all of those who profess Christ but do not know Christ, All false professors will be exposed by the king on the last day. Only true believers will be at the marriage supper of the lamb that is described in Revelation 19. So what is this wedding garment? You know, it really surprises me to come to commentators and find all of the different ideas about the wedding garment and what it might mean... Very few of them want to say, let's see what other portions of Scripture have to say, or let's read this in light of what later is revealed in Paul. Well, I think we should. We should read it in light of Paul. We should recognize that Jesus' doctrine of justification is Paul's doctrine of justification. It's really clear, isn't it? The wedding garment is a robe that declares the guest fit. The wedding garment is a robe that declares the guest to be acceptable. It is a gift of grace. It is necessary. It is indispensable. It is protection from the judgment. So what is the wedding garment? Clearly, it is the judicial robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to the believer in Jesus. And without this, we are found out. Without this, we are tied and thrown into darkness awaiting the judgment. The wedding garment is the perfect record of Christ, received by faith alone. It is given when one responds by faith, truly by faith, to the gospel call. And so I ask, are you properly attired for the wedding feast? When you sang those words this morning, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress Did you know whereof you sang? Could you sing with great joy? Because you were adorned with the wedding garment, and you have been by Christ and His righteousness adorned in such perfection that you are completely accepted at the feast. Who is the intruder? Who is this man that got in and everyone thought he should be there, but the king knew better? The intruder is the person who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. The intruder is the one who clings to his own righteousness. The intruder is one who draws a garment from his own wardrobe. The man was wrongly attired. He tried to cover himself. The intruder is the one who relies on the law or his good works or his, his character or his philosophy He is the one who professes what he does not possess. He is the one who has no saving faith in Christ. And for everyone like this, your only hope and my only hope is the imputed righteousness of Jesus because only the righteous robe of Christ can satisfy the law's demands. Only the righteousness of Christ can justify you in God's court of law. Only the righteousness of Christ can quiet your conscience and give you assurance in the presence of the king. Only the righteousness of Christ can be given by God himself and be received by faith alone. Old Thomas Brooks the Puritan said it really beautifully. Imputed righteousness is the same materially with that which the law requires. It is obedience to the law of God exactly and punctually performed to the very utmost iota and tittle thereof. Without the least abatement, Christ hath paid the utmost farthing. He is the fulfilling of the law for righteousness, and he hath fulfilled the law in his human nature to the intent that it might be fulfilled in the same nature to which it was at first given. And all this he has expressly done in all their names and on all their behalfs that believe in him. It is as if our dear Lord Jesus had said, "'O blessed Father,' This I suffer, and this I do, to the use, and in the stead, and in the room of all those that have ventured their souls upon me, that they may have a righteousness which they may truly call their own, and on which they may safely rest, and in which they may forever glory." And then Brooks, thinking of this imputed righteousness of Christ, received by faith alone, says, Oh, the matchless happiness of believers who have so fair, so full, and so noble a plea to make in the great day of our Lord Jesus. That's it, isn't it? The only fair, the only true, the only beautiful, the only right plea that you will have in the day of judgment is Jesus died for me, by faith, take the righteousness of Christ to be yours. Take his substitution on the cross to be your substitution. Old Robert Trail, one of the greats in our history, says the poor wearied sinner can never believe on Jesus Christ till he finds he can do nothing for himself. And in his first believing, he always applies to Christ for salvation as a man hopeless and helpless in himself do you see have you seen do you continue to see that in yourself you are hopeless and you are helpless and that apart from the righteous garment of Christ you would be lost forever which leads us sixthly to the sovereignty of grace the sovereignty of grace we find it in verse 14 For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. So there is the indiscriminate gospel call, and there is the effectual call. There is the call that goes out, and all may hear with the natural ear, but there are those to whom the Holy Spirit takes this call right to the heart, savingly and effectually, and both are here. The call goes out from Christ's minister. Some refuse to come. Some are inappropriately attired. But the encouragement of the text is that God's sovereign choice secures the salvation of sinners that he is determined to adorn in the righteousness of Christ and to bring to the table at the feast. Few, many think they are saved who are not. There really are few in number who are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Many in the aggregate, for on that day there will be a multitude which no man can number. But usually at any stage of history, with rare exceptions in a place here or there, there are few who respond to the gospel call. But the encouragement is, God's sovereign choice secures the salvation of sinners, and it is infallibly secured. The Father who chose a people from before the foundation of the world to be saved will never be disappointed that they will not come. The Son who substituted Himself on a cross to save those chosen of the Father will never be disappointed that somehow they will not be saved by His blood. The Holy Spirit who takes that word and opens the heart and grants saving faith and grants repentance will never be disappointed that they do not come. The entire Trinity is involved in your salvation. And the king's messengers will be blessed with secret power. For there may be some who deny the gospel and refuse it, but those whom God intends to open the heart and give the message savingly will receive it. Yes, yes, guests will be furnished at this feast guests who are truly and rightly attired and accepted by the king, clothed by free and sovereign grace in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about these things as we begin to bring things to a conclusion. What does God use in order to gather His elect? Those who eventually will be that swollen multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. What does He use? He uses the indiscriminate call to the feast. The preaching of the Word of God, the witness of you, believers, to others, the giving out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. that's what He uses. Do you know how Christianity came to Korea? You probably know that Presbyterianism is very large in Korea. You know one congregation is probably larger than our entire denomination. I mean, there are churches like that in Korea. Five seminaries in South Korea. Uh, all of them, all of them, all the presidents are presidents from Westminster Seminary. Some wonderful things happening in Korea. But now I'm talking about North Korea, before there was the division, long before when the gospel first came to Korea. Despite a couple of efforts that had been made to bring the gospel, it was very close to Westerners. And the Reverend Robert J. Thomas, who was a Welshman, had gone to China He had gone under the London Missionary Society and there he learned that in Korea they were able to read, those who were literate, could read classical Chinese. So he said, well I must go to Korea and take the Bible there and take the gospel there. And he succeeded in going to some islands, but not the mainland. And then he found that there was a ship called the General Sherman that was making a voyage of exploration of Korea. And he persuaded them to allow him to come along with his tracts and his Bibles written in Chinese characters. That's all he had. There were only five Westerners on board, and all but, but this Pastor Thomas represented themselves in a very threatening character to the Koreans. And as they went up the river toward, toward Pyongyang, they made a few stops and he distributed Bibles and tracts and he even left some on the shore for people just to find and to begin to read here and there as they made their way north. And as the ship neared Pyongyang, it was grounded on a sandbar and the Koreans sent chained boats, boats that were chained together uh, down river with burning piles of debris to surround the ship so that the General Sherman would be caught on fire. So what happened was that they had to leave the ship, these Westerners. So they waded ashore, and when they came ashore, they came with their guns and their knives, and they were clubbed to death, But the Koreans say that all the foreigners came on shore with swords and pistols and so forth, except one that acted very strangely, and it was this Reverend Thomas, who staggered on shore with his arms filled with Bibles and thrust them into the hands of those who were clubbing him to death. That's how the gospel came to Korea. The officials tried to burn all the Bibles, but many of them got through and they were read. And remember, there were those along the shore. That he had left 27 years later the first catechumen received by the Presbyterian missionary Dr. Moffat was the son of a man who had received one of those Bibles when this missionary was murdered and all down the river churches were planted in places that were marked as places where the Bible had been left by this missionary am I getting through Do you see what I'm saying? Christianity of the solid old Presbyterian variety flourished and the seed for which, for these churches, were the Bibles that were left by this missionary who gave his life to bring the most precious gift that a person can bring to the Korean people. And we are in a position today in which we need to re-evangelize our nation. We are a pagan nation. So when I had a meeting the other day at, at a coffee shop, I gave out New Testaments to the people behind the corner, behind the counter. Why? It's the Word of God. So that's the general invitation. Through this, God calls His own and gives them the wedding garment. Sinners need the wedding garment And you discover Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, how he saves, right here in this word that we need to get out into our culture once again. Ian Murray tells of John Rogers, the Puritan. He says he was taking a wedding service. He was officiating a wedding. And John Rogers preached on the necessity of the wedding garment. And here's how it was recorded what happened. God made the word so effectual that the marriage solemnity was turned into bitter mourning so that the ministers who were at the marriage were employed in comforting or advising those whose consciences had been awakened by the sermon. So how would you like that, young lady? At your wedding, you come down. You're almost ready to exchange your vows. The minister preaches and he says, you don't have... The wedding garment. If you don't have the wedding garment, you're not rightly attired for the wedding. Oh, the wedding I'm talking about is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of a sudden, everybody around is convicted and they begin to weep. And the ministers have to go and minister them and to them. Would you say, oh no, my wedding is ruined? Or would you say, praise God, he used my wedding for the conversion of the lost. So that's it. The means that God uses are simple, are simple. It is the gospel call, the word of God that comes once more, even today. Once more, come to the marriage feast. May the Father draw sinners with bonds of love. May those who hear this sermon around the world on internet come to the Savior. And when one comes in faith, this one is dressed in the flawless righteousness of Jesus Christ... This one is the true guest. This one is saved. This one is perfect before the judgment seat. This one is justified, accepted irrevocably forever with a garment that never wears out, with a garment that will never wear out and that will wear in the fire. Let me not have to stand by someone's coffin here and say, this one rejected the gospel call. Or I just just don't know. I saw no evidence. Examine your life. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have the wedding garment? It's a simple question. And if you are afraid to bring, if deep within I ask you that question, examine yourself. Do you have the wedding garment? And if you are afraid to bring your life into the light, that may say something. All things are ready. There is no excuse for not coming. The fare is infinitely bountiful. The invitation is sincere. All things are ready. Add nothing. Nothing. Just come. Just come in faith. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.